You cannot get people to behave in a certain manner unless they understand the parameters and definition of what they're asked to do. You can try to get people all you want to live the Christian life. You can be like smiling Joel and you can try to give them morning, Sunday morning te- pep talks or try to, from the pulpit, try to give them guilt trips. But all of those things are bypassing church. The real motives for living the Christian life, the real guts of it, the real heart of it. And it is simply this. Here is the nutshell, folks, of what it means to live the Christian life. Understanding who we are in Jesus Christ. That is the basics, church. Know your position. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. please to Ephesians chapter number one Ephesians chapter number one and after you have found that out of respect for God's word if you would please stand as we read our text Ephesians chapter number one beginning in verse number 15 Ephesians 1 verse number 15 this is the word of God wherefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding and that your truth would be clear to us today. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Grab him right here, son. Grab him right here, right in the chest on either side of his chest pads. He looks like Tarzan, but he plays like Jane. Well, at least the other team will be afraid of him of how big he is when he gets off the bus until they see him play. Those were the words of Danny Hugh Freeze Jr., head coach, head football coach of the Briarcrest Christian School in Memphis, Tennessee. 
Those words were spoken about a player who as a sophomore in high school was 6'4", and weigh 315 pounds. And the player's name was Michael Orr. Michael, or as he became affectionately known as Big Mike, was one of 12 children that were born to a woman who, by the name of Denise Orr. Denise Orr had a severe alcohol and cocaine addiction. Big Mike was eventually, in 2005 was eventually adopted by Leanne and Sean Tui, who himself was a wealthy businessman who was, a, who was the owner and proprietor of over 50 Taco Bells in Memphis and the surrounding area. Some of you would love to be a member of that family. Or was ultimately recruited by Coach Freeze because of his size. He just naturally assumed that because this 6'4 guy, 315 pounds, he just naturally assumed that he knew the basics about football. But he later found out that Orr, even as big as he was, he did not know the first thing about the positions of football. He was at first a horrible player. The only thing that Michael Orr did consistently while he was playing football was commit penalties. Instead of grabbing the player by the, between the numbers, he would grab him by the collar and throw him down. And a 6'4", 315 pound man can do that. But that's called horse collaring in football and it's slightly illegal and slightly frowned upon. He did not understand the basics of offense or defense or where to go on the field, or where he could not go on the field, or who he was allowed to hit, and how hard he was allowed to hit, and what part of the body he was allowed to grab. Well, he started his football career as a junior because he didn't have the GPA as a sophomore to play, so he had to raise his, his GPA as a, as a sophomore in high school was .7. I didn't know you could get that low. But he had to get his grade point average up before he'd be allowed to play. But when he was allowed to play, he started at right tackle. And if you know anything about football, you know that the right tackle is the offensive position whose sole job is to protect the quarterback's blind side in order to help ensure that the quarterback doesn't get sacked from behind. And that's where, when quarterbacks get sacked from behind, that's where most concussions take place. So Orr had a pretty big job. As time went on, as practice began to take place, as he began to understand the game of football, as his knowledge increased, Michael Orr became one of the most feared right tackles in Division II football. Through knowledge and hard work, Michael Orr was awarded in high school the Division IIA Lineman of the Year in 2005. He was awarded first team Tennessee All-State. And Michael Orr, upon graduating from high school with a 2.8, went to play football for Ole Miss University as a right tackle and participated in the U.S. Army All-American Bowl in 2005. But he didn't stop there. In 2009, Michael Orr was drafted in the first round to play football for the Baltimore Ravens. He played in the National Football League from 2009 to 2016. 
What was the key to bring Michael Orr's being a bad or average player to being such a player, being such a feared player, that he has a Super Bowl ring from Super Bowl 47? And that was this. It came to a point in Michael Orr's life where he understood his position. Because understanding your position in sports is vital to being a success in that sport. John MacArthur, in one of his sermons entitled Our Resources in Christ, tells of, a, tells of one of his football stories of when he was in college. He said that he had a boy by the name of Kurt that was a member of his football squad, and he was a great athlete. He was physically superior. He was quick, fast. He was tremendously strong. He could pump 295 pounds at 23 repetitions. Boom, boom, boom. And he was very, very, which is always good for an offensive football player or a defensive lineman. He was very, very aggressive. He was tough as nails. The coaches decided to make him a middle linebacker. That's what he played in high school. But in high school, it's a little bit less organized, so you can kind of run all over the place. But when you get in college, things are a little bit more sophisticated, and you just can't run all over the place. I mean, as a middle linebacker, so like everybody else, you've got a particular area that you have to cover, and if you're not there, the team's in trouble. And invariably, what would happen is that the quarterback would make a fake, and somewhere, Kurt wasn't there like he was supposed to be, and then the whole play just fell apart. Well, this went on for about four or five games, and finally the guy who was the best athlete that was on the team wound up on the bench because he just could not play the position. You say, Pastor, where in the world are you going with this? Folks, listen to me. The same is true in your Christian life. You cannot get people to behave in a certain manner unless they understand the parameters and definition of what they're asked to do. You can try to get people all you want to live the Christian life. You can be like smiling Joel and you can try to give them morning, Sunday morning pep talks or try to, from the pulpit, try to give them guilt trips. But all of those things are bypassing, church, the real motives for living the Christian life, the real guts of it, the real heart of it. And it is simply this. Here is the nutshell, folks, of what it means to live the Christian life, understanding who we are in Jesus Christ. That is the basics, church. Know your position. Because if you and I do not understand our position in Christ, our Christian life is going to fall flat. I can stand up here from the pulpit until I'm blue in the face, and I can give you truth after truth after truth after truth from the Word of God, but until you understand it, until you understand who you are in Christ, it doesn't really mean anything to you, does it? The point of preacher's kids, they're born into the world. You can ask any of my five boys, they're, they're born into the world with a certain stigma. They're born into the world being believed that they're supposed to act a certain way. In fact, I read a funny story this week about uh, John MacArthur when he was a toddler. 
uh, he was very rambunctious, and he got into a habit of biting people. His father was a pastor of uh, British uh, uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada, and his father finally hung a sign around MacArthur's neck during church that said, "Don't play with me, I bite." Kids, preachers' kids are born with that stigma and hopes, and we like to remind our kids sometimes. Uh, as MacArthur says, he was reminded fairly often that you are the pastor's son, and we, we do that in hopes that that child understands their position as a preacher's kid, and that will reflect in the way that they live. Because church, here's a fact. Unless you and I understand and really take to heart the fact that when we wake up in the morning, we represent the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never truly understand what it means to be a Christian. Until we understand we represent Jesus Christ, only thing salvation is to us is fire insurance. It's a home in heaven. But we need to understand that when you walk out the door of your home, when you get up out of your bed and you and you have fellowship with your family, you represent Jesus Christ. And you and I need to understand that. Paul has spent several verses, verses 3 through 14 in this chapter, giving this church benefit after benefit after benefit of, of what it means to be a Christian, that we are elect, that we are predestined, that we are forgiven, that we've obtained an inheritance. But it doesn't mean anything, does it? Unless you and I understand it. And from verses 15 to 23, Paul spends time praying for this church in verses 15 to 17, and then in the remainder of the church, he makes petitions for this church. But folks, we need, as God's people, just like Michael Orr and just like Kurt, we need to understand our position. Not on the football team, because that's here today, gone tomorrow, isn't it? But we need to understand our position in Christ who we are in Christ. And that's not meant to be cliche, but we need to understand what does it mean? What does it truly mean that I am forgiven? Because the way you understand that church will have massive ramifications upon the way that you live. How is the fact that I've been given an inheritance? What does that truly mean? Because our understanding of that will have massive ramifications upon the way that we live. If you and I believe that, listen, that, that the only thing that I can do in life is sin, then what will you do? That's all you'll do is sin. But until you and I understand the fact that with that forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 7, with that forgiveness also comes the ability not to participate in that sin. Until we understand that, then the only thing forgiveness is, church, is just a word. But we need to understand that with that forgiveness comes the ability and the strength through the Holy Spirit not to sin. And so Paul begins, number one, with Paul. We want to see Paul's prayer. He spends the first three verses, verses 15, 16, and 17, praying and thanking God for different aspects of, the, of this church and their existence. And he starts by giving them a word of praise. And has been, and has all, already been mentioned, we can look back and we can see, verses three, 3 to 14, we can see the resources that have been given us in Christ. And those resources really become our starting point in verse 15. 
where, which is where the position that we have in Christ's church begins. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in what? That is key. That is key. Faith in who? Not just Jesus, not just Christ, not God, but the Lord Jesus. And love unto all the saints. The resources, church, that we have all begin and are first found in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is a vitally important subject that the, that the Lord just keeps bringing us back. I began to read this text this, the last couple of weeks and I began to say to myself, Lord, why are you constantly bringing back into our minds and in front of our face the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And that's because somebody needs to hear a message again about what it really means to have Jesus Christ as Lord. It has been about four years at the writing of Ephesians that since Paul had had the privilege of seeing these believers face to face, but Paul had been kept well informed of their profession in Christ. And he saw by their testimony the resources that they had in Christ. That Paul knew that there were faults in this church, just as there are faults among us today. Faults which need attention, to which Paul would address later in this letter. So, so when we look at the book of Ephesians, we're not looking at a perfect church. We're looking at a church that had massive problems. And Paul emphasizes here that one of their positions and the resource they have of true saving faith is the lordship of Jesus Christ to which we not only say that he is Lord, but we submit to that lordship as the object of our belief. And I'm, this is a repeated message, church, from Scripture. Because we still live in a society, we still live in an evangelical society that that, that is among Christians that are willing to accept almost anyone professions of faith of salvation as being genuine. You and I as God's people, I was told last week, and I don't, I don't know where this title came from, but it got back to me that when you ladies got together last Monday evening and had your little tea party, and crumpets, yeah, put the, put the pinky out. When y'all had y'all's little tea party, that somehow, what are you, what are you, back here, she's smirking. Somehow I was given the title of the salvation police. I don't know that I really appreciate that title. The, Brother Blue, what does that mean, salvation police? He's as dumbfounded about it as I am. Affectionate. Yeah, so y'all now you know who gave me the title. <laughs> well, let me know what you find out. I believe, Brother Blue, that that title probably requires some sort of, some level of divinity in order to be the salvation police. And that's definitely not me. But, it, but here's the problem. Here's the real problem, church that we have in evangelicalism far too wide a gap, an idea of what we are willing to say, you're Christian and you're Christian and you're Christian. 
We, we live in an evangelicalism that, that gives far too much room for that. I read a statistic the other week, and it was kind of staggering. The statistic was this, that in a survey done, and you know how surveys go, but just take, the, take it at face value, that, among, that a survey was done that amongst professing Christians, 75% did not believe the Bible was the Word of God. 81% did not believe that Satan was a real personality. 94.5% of professing Christians did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Folks, at least two of the three of those things are non-negotiables. But yet you have an evangelicalism, over 94% of the professing evangelicals said they did not believe that Jesus Christ was God, but was just a good teacher. There's a problem. And Paul says, when I heard of your faith, I rejoiced. When I heard of your faith in who, church? The Lord Jesus. Some would believe and have us to believe that the teachings on the Lordship of Jesus Christ is work salvation. That there are works that we must do to be saved, uh, then that would be considered work salvation. Therefore, teaching that you have to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord is... Uh, work salvation, so they reject it entirely. Now, we understand that salvation is by grace through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, don't we? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to what? His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, But we are all an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. And, all, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But listen, church, we need to understand the second part of this twin truth. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always done what? As ye have always obeyed. You get it? Ye have always obeyed. Paul didn't say anything about it. ye pray to prayer. Ye join the church. Ye were baptized. He said, ye have obeyed. There's not obedience. There's no salvation. Paul says, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. What does he tell them? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then we get the second half of that coin in verse 13. For it is what? It is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So folks, listen, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, but true salvation brings what? Obedience. Submission to the Lordship of Christ. I want to draw, I want to draw your attention to a parable this morning that Christ told that reflects the truth that true faith has fruit. And the fruit is the submission to the Lordship of Christ. And it's found in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14 and, begin, and going to verse 30. Don't turn there. We're going to put some verses on the screen. 
Jesus said in verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is, is, is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Now keep in mind that whatever else we may learn from this passage, we know that this is a description of what the kingdom will be like. Now the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, you'll notice in your English Bible is in italic, which means that that was added by the translators and is not found in the original Greek manuscripts. But the, but the cross-reference to that, or the, or the parables begin in verse 1, that does speak about the kingdom of heaven. And so we understand by classification that the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents are both speaking uh, about the kingdom because Matthew 25 is a kingdom passage. The, talking about the millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ returns a second time in power and great glory and sets up his kingdom. And ultimately speaking about those people that go to heaven. Church, listen, it must be understood that the parables of the, that the parable of the ten virgins in verses one to thirteen and the parable of the talents here do not represent or do not, yeah, do not represent professing pagans. Okay? They do not represent atheists. They do not represent agnostics. They do not represent reprobates, but it represents those people who profess to know Jesus Christ. These servants, that those ten virgins, and these three servants are all people that said, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I'm going into the kingdom. And in both of those accounts, we see both the genuine and the negative believer Counterfeit believer depicted. Look at verse 14 again. And the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Now when he says, talks about his own servants, this is not an indication that these three servants belong to him, but it is an indication that these three servants profess to belong to him. It's the same thing you see, for example, in John chapter 6, verses 52 to 66, when Jesus Christ began to teach drinking his blood and eating his flesh as a symbol that you really belong to him. And what happened to that account? Those people that were offended walked away and followed him no more. But guess what, church? What does John call them? John calls them disciples. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, from that time, many of his what? Disciples went back and walked with him no more. Judas was not only called an apostle, but in Luke chapter 6, verses 13 to 16, he was also called a disciple. There are those throughout the history of the church that have latched on to Christ in seeming true faith, but have been found to be false. And in this passage, this master goes on his journey. Look at verse 15. And unto one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway he took his journey. Just to kind of lay this parable out for you, folks, in an obvious division, the master represents Jesus Christ. The journey that he took represents the time that he was away between his first and his second coming. And the slaves obviously represent those people who are professing believers. We're not going to take the time to walk you through every verse of this parable because we just don't have time to do that. That's not my assignment this morning. So we're not going to do that. But there's many, many truths that are found in this parable. But I want you to notice what happened when the master returned in verse 19. After a long time, 
the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with him. Now, Jesus Christ repeatedly stated during his Olivet Discourse that his second coming, his second coming will be at a time when you least expect it, right? In Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, where watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 44, therefore be ye also ready. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. And in that parable, Matthew 25, the master comes back to settle his accounts. And those servants that have received the five talents, that servant that have received the five talents, and those servant, that servant that have received the two talents, look what it said they did, verse 20. So he that have received five talents came and brought what? Folks, let me, let me just give you a little bit of, let me just give you a little bit of information. And I'm telling you this because this is what I was incorrectly taught as a young person growing up in church. This has nothing to do with spiritual gifts. This is not a parable teaching that if you don't use your spiritual gift, you lose it. That's, that's not even close to what this parable is teaching. And I hope you're going to see that. But those that, he that had received the five talents, he came and he, he came back and he brought what? He brought more what? He brought more talents. He brought more fruit. And saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I've gained thee five more talents. Now look at verse 22. And he that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I've gained two other talents beside them. When these two servants, church, when they came back to report that they had used the talents given them and they had gained more talents, they're not being boastful because we understand that only those who have talents have those talents because God has given them to us. And they have done with them what they should have, right? They've done with them what a true believer does with what God opportunities God gives them. They produce more fruit. They exhibited the same attitude that Jesus spoke about, saying that, that every obedient disciple should do. Notice Luke chapter 17 and verse 10. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our what? Do you want to say somebody's a Christian, but they don't serve the Lord? Jesus said, that's your duty. Right? And Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that's just your reasonable duty. You say you're saved and you, and you, and you prove your salvation by the fact that you work for the Lord and, and you're obedient to Christ and you desire the things of God. Paul says that's just reasonable. At the end of Paul's life, he, he expressed a tremendous sense of fulfillment and joy. Notice what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. He says, for I'm now ready to be offered. And I pray, church, that every one of us can say this at the end of our life. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness because of what I did. There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all of them that love is appearing. Though this parable is about saints entering into the millennial kingdom because of their faithfulness to the Lord, the principles are the same in the age that we live in now. Only those that are faithful enter the kingdom. 
That is why the master says to the one who would receive five talents and the one who would receive two talents. Look what he says in verse 23. Well done. (laughs) Right? Well done. Good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Not only will the Lord entrust greater earthly tasks to those who show themselves faithful, but the heavenly reward will be an opportunity for greater service throughout all of eternity. But just like the first two slaves, the third slave also professed to belong to the Lord too. But notice what he did in verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you'd be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had not strawed. And in two distinct ways, he proved that his identification with Christ was superficial and did not involve genuine faith and regeneration. And folks, this is a millennial kingdom passage, but the facts and the application and the truth is still the same today. These two distinctions are still true. First of all, this third servant produced nothing for his master. That's the, folks, listen, here's the key that we need to understand. He produced nothing for his master. I didn't say he wasn't a philanthropist. I didn't say he didn't give to charity. I didn't even say he didn't go to church and teach a Sunday school class. But he did nothing. What did the first two servants do? They gave what they had earned back to who? The master. This guy, he produced nothing for the master. In fact, he didn't didn't even attempt it. He didn't even come out of the gates starting well. Because notice what he says in verse 18. As soon as he received it, what does verse 18 says he did? He went and buried it in the ground. He had absolutely no desire to produce anything for his master. He, He had absolutely no desire to increase the value of the one he served. But I want you, to, again, to keep in mind that this servant, again, does not represent atheists. He does not represent agnostics. He does not re- represent reprobates. He, he represents those people that, that recognize and acknowledge that the master was his owner. This guy just simply disregarded and had no desire to bear any fruit for his master. And in such a way, many people in the church today who say that they're true believers, have absolutely no desire to produce any fruit for the master. Oh, I didn't say they didn't desire to put on a show. I didn't say they 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 necessarily don't like a desire to perform. But there are many people sitting in the church today that have to show absolutely no desire to produce any fruit, bear any fruit for the master. Second, the slave demonstrated his counterfeit allegiance by decrepitating the master's character. Look at verse 24. And he that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not straw. This slave charged the master with being unmerciful and dishonest. And this slave represents professing Christians who instead of judging himself in the light of God's word, such people judge God in light of their own perverted perception. This is the unregenerate church member that sings in the choir 
This is the unregenerate church member that watches nursery, cleans the building. But this is the unregenerate church member that has no spiritual fruit, no spiritual life, no spiritual worship in their hearts. And what does the master say to do to this servant? Look at verse 26. Thou wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I sowed not and gathered where I not strawed. Now notice verse 30. And cast ye that unprofitable servant in where? Which is what? Hell. Listen, church. Hell is going to be filled with church members. Hell is going to be filled with people who made a profession of faith in Christ. Hell is going to be filled with baptized church members who had absolutely no desire to bear any fruit for the master but took every opportunity and just buried it in the ground. You want to know who's a Christian and who isn't a Christian? You want to know who follows the pattern of what Paul gives us in Ephesians 1.15 as submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ? It is that Christian who has a desire in their heart. They're not perfect, but has a desire in their heart to obey the word of God, to understand the word of God, to be in fellowship with God's people, to hear God's word preached, to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Listen, somebody looked at me one time, one time and said, Pastor, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, do you? And I said, yes, you do have to go to church to be a Christian. And they said, isn't that work salvation? I said, no, because if you don't desire to go to church, you're not a Christian. You don't have any desire to be in God's house. You don't profess to know Jesus Christ. If you have no desire to hear the word of God preached, then don't profess that you know Jesus Christ. When Paul says in verse 15, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. What did he hear about them? Not that they just professed to be saved. He heard about their obedience. Their obedience. Listen, church, the fruit of salvation is submission to the Lordship of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, who? The Lord Jesus. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What did he tell them in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31? Believe on who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, it's not that we make him Lord. He is Lord. We submit to his lordship if we're truly born again. And Paul, by saying, you are, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Listen, when we get saved, we don't understand everything about the Lord granted. But when you get saved, there's a change of the desire in a person's heart that the pattern of their life is that they're willing to submit. And that's what Paul means in Ephesians 1.15. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Folks, listen, how is submission, though a resource, a position that we need to understand is a blessing. How is, how is the understanding of the, the lordship of Jesus Christ and who is and who is not a Christian, how is that a resource? When I contemplate the blessings of the position that submission brings, my mind immediately goes back to John chapter 21 and the exchange between Peter and Jesus Christ. You all remember what Peter did. He denied the Lord three times, did something that he promised that he wouldn't do. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He rose. He told his disciples to go to Galilee. Wait for me there. And when they went to Galilee and Jesus didn't come fast enough, what did Peter say? I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my old profession. 
And when Christ met them on the beach after, night, after all night fishing and fixed them breakfast, look at verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Peter, Simon Peter, Simon, which by the way, remember from Easter sermon, Simon is, is Peter's name before Christ. Whenever Jesus referred to Peter as Simon, he was always reminding Simon, you're acting like your old self, so I'm going to call you by your old name. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? And I want you to remember that when Jesus said, Simon, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agapao, which is the self-sacrificing love of the will. And Peter knew that his actions over the last days would not have warranted such an affirmation on his part. So he says this in verse 15. He said, Lord, you know that I love thee. And though that word love is in our English language, it is not the Greek word agapao, but it's the Greek word phileo, which is the Greek word that means I have a fond affection for you. Peter knew that his life could not affirm this highest form of love. So he went to a level of love that he thought was safe. Jesus asked Peter that question three times. And the scripture says in verse 17, he asked him again the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And then look what it says in verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Someone said that Peter was grieved because Christ kept asking him that same question over and over again. No, Peter wasn't grieved because he was asked the question three times. Because Peter was grieved because the third time Jesus Christ did not use the Greek word agapao. Jesus Christ used the word phileo. So to Peter, Jesus was even questioning that lower level of love that Peter thought he was safe by expressing. Now where's Peter going to go? I've, Peter in his own mind says, I've gone as low as I can. Where else am I going to go? Peter had only one resource left. Verse 7, 17. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love us, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, look at this, Lord, you know what? You know all things. You know that I love you. Peter was saying, Lord, I know my life doesn't show it. But you know my heart. And you know I love you. Sometimes it is frightening for you and I to think about that the Lord knows our hearts. Why? Because there are times in our lives that the actions and the thoughts and intents of our heart are not what they should be. If you're anything like me, there are many, many times where the thoughts and intentions of your heart are not what they should be. But God knows your heart, and God knows you love Him. And by the same token, church, I want you to understand that submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a blessed position because there are times in our life when we are not obedient, and that despair can bring a, a questioning of our eternal redemption, and that despair can bring a questioning of our true position in Christ. However, the Lord Jesus knows our heart, and because He knows our heart, the Spirit bears witness with us that though at that moment we are in a disobedient life, we truly understand and we truly want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Even though we are in a time of disobedience like Peter was, the Lord bears witness with our, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we do desire to know the Word of God. We do desire to hear it preached. We do desire to witness. We do desire to be holy. We do desire to be obedient. And that is a blessed reminder that we truly love the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let me tell you one more story and I'm done. When I was eight years old, I played Little League basketball, and I wasn't the athlete that I am today. <laughs> Michael Orr, by the way, was not only a phenomenal football player, but he also averaged 22 points a game in basketball. Many of you don't know that about his life. But I was not the phenomenal physique, and, uh, and I was not the man that I am today. And my dad wanted me to play sports. He thought that would help me with my coordination. And ultimately it did. But it was a hard road. The coach would bring us together and he would give us the plays and I didn't understand them. And I remember one time we were, coming, we were marching down the court on a fast break and, and we had a certain formation. I don't remember what the play was called. We had a certain formation that we had to work, and I was to and I was to come around the side there, and the and the and the and the, and the point guard was bringing the ball down the court, and as I came around on the left side of the key, he was going to bounce past that ball to me, and I was going to go up for a slam dunk. At eight. Well, there was only one thing wrong with that, brother Ben, and that was that I didn't understand my position. And I, and I came around on the wrong side. Well, I, came, I accidentally came down on the right side of the court, but I wasn't looking for the ball. But the point guard knew the play. I got hit in the head with the ball. Not once, but four times. When I left the game, the gym that day, ingrained in my face was Spalding. Because I didn't understand the position. I didn't understand the position. I didn't understand where I was supposed to be. Church, you, you and I will fail at our Christian life if we first don't understand that our, our position, chapter one, verse 15, our position is to submit to the Lordship of Christ. That's your first position. And if you're truly saved, it's going to be a glorious position for you to fulfill. True Christians don't have problems submitting to the Lordship of Christ as a pattern of life. Yes, we sin, but we don't have a problem submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because that's our first position. We can, have, we can think <coughs> of all the things we've received in Christ, all we want. But if there's no submission to the Lordship of Christ first, if that's not your first position, Nothing else matters. Salvation is proven by those who submit to the Lordship of Christ. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.